Good morning, one and all. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, October 30th, 2022. The share ID numbers for Friday, October 28th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 19,572. That's 19572. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 19,573. That's 19573. This morning, A Vision for You presents Reframing Program Concepts, Why Words Matter. Step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Tradition 5 states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Yes, we are responsible. Yes, when anyone, anywhere, reaches out for help, We want the hand of Overeaters Anonymous always to be there. And for that, we are responsible. As recovered compulsive overeaters, our chief responsibility to the newcomer is an accurate presentation of the program. Overeaters Anonymous is not growing as fast as it once did, and there's a lot of conjecture as to why this is true. So, once in a while, we have to take a critical look at things, even the things we think are worthy and working well, and determine if there is a need for further improvement. How can we carry the message more effectively? Can we help those newcomers who perhaps have had negative experiences with 12-step programs due to a misunderstanding of various program concepts? Words do matter, and they do have the power to change minds and perceptions. The way we use certain words reflects and conveys our deeply held beliefs and attitudes and have an impact. Reframing the way we explain the program can lead those suffering to change and expand their perspectives, hence opening the door to a recovery way of life. Joining us to speak on this very topic today is John Kay, a recovered compulsive overeater from California. John is both a student and a teacher of the big book, a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous, carrying the message of recovery far and wide. And it's always a pleasure to have John, a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous, on the line sharing with us. Good morning, John, and welcome. 
Thank you, Leah. It's good to be here. I just realized we're a day away from the beginning of the Overeaters uh, holiday season. I always joke that in the States, our holiday season goes from Thanksgiving to New Year's for everybody, but for compulsive eaters, it starts on Halloween and on uh, Valentine's Day, the two candy holidays. <laughs> so anyway, um, thank you all, and thank you for uh, allowing me to do this. Um, again, my name is John Kiernan, a compulsive eater. Um, so for a while now, I've been working in a new career, and that is as a substance abuse counselor. Now, I've worked for two different treatment centers so far, and both of them have decided to not make 12-step programs the only option for recovery. Now, when I think about it, my personal views is that the 12 steps are the best path for long-term recovery. I can also at the same time see their point. Many of the clients have taken multiple runs at AA or NA and couldn't make it work. As someone with over 40 years in both AA and OA, I can look at what these newcomers saw and observe where I think sometimes the 12-step life doesn't speak well to a newcomer living in the 21st century. Now, the reality, of course, is the program works if you work it, but, you know, you have to be inside the room for it to work. Now, my fellow old-timers might say, well, you know, they just haven't hit a bottom yet, they haven't surrendered, and, you know, that might be true, but part of my job is to help people recover, not judge at what level they need to be in order to start recovering. It's my job to meet them where they're at. So the key question, of course, is to ask, are you ready to do what it takes to find recovery? I think some of the main reasons why newcomers to all 12-step programs have trouble is it stems from the language used, both in the literature and in the rooms. Now, firstly, we all understand and use a shorthand and a common language, knowing that these words mean different things to different people. You know, the most obvious ones are God and higher power, but there are plenty more. The problem is that the newcomer only reads or hears the words, not the nuance that we've all learned from our time and program. This morning, I thought I would talk about things that might help if you're a newcomer or if you're helping guide a newcomer. And this might just also help if you're struggling with some of the concepts of OA or actually anybody who's interested in looking at these aspects of the program in a different way. My goal here is to reframe some of the common program concepts in such a way as to possibly give people struggling with them a new way of looking at them. Now, if you're listening to this and you're part of the Vision family, you probably already discovered the power contained in the big book. It saved my life with numerous addictions. At the same time, there is one glaring fact. The book was written in 1937 and contains more than its share of outdated phrases and ways of looking at things. Now, this is understandable due to its being written by men that were products of their time. You know, as a history buff, I've always had a problem with those who judge people from the past by the mores of our current society. Because I'm sure people in the future will look at us, products of this time, and have plenty of disparaging remarks about us, maybe even calling us barbaric. Uh, having said that, we who study the big book carefully understand in some ways that we have to, you know, quote, filter out some of this archaic and dated language. At the same time, we know the main message of the big book is as relevant to us today as the first day it rolled off the presses in Newark. As to the writing itself, I believe some of the sections of the big book are written as well as any other book cited as important literature. 
I tell newcomers, if they can be open, suspend judgment, be open-minded, and talk openly about their objections, I might be able to help break down their walls. I tell them they have nothing to lose but their misery. I explain that most of their objections will come from the words used, not the concepts. A while back, I had a client whose main objection to AA was her impression that she had to, quote, had to get up and identify myself as an alcoholic whenever I wanted to share. And I asked her where she got that impression, and she said, well, everybody else there does. And I explained to her my belief that this identification practice uh, started as a way to take the charge out of the word alcoholic. And the same is true here for compulsive overeater or bulimic or anorexic. However, I went on to explain to her that if she didn't want to say that, that's fine, just identify by her first name. And she pressed me saying, well, won't people come up and want to know why I don't label myself that way? I told her, if they did, just ask them to point out where that's written in the tradition. <laughs> and then I asked her if she had a desire to stay sober, and she said she did. And I said, well, that's it. Game over. Now, the key word she used was label. In whatever way we choose to introduce ourselves or not, in her case, they're just words. They're just labels. You see, the human mind is a pattern-matching machine. As a result, whenever we go into a new setting, and we look at certain words given to us, we try to match them up, and those words are the things from the past. Now, it's important for newcomers to diffuse their current mental pictures about certain words used in program so they can see them a different way. Now, in my profession, we've moved away from labels like addiction and alcoholic to substance abuse and abuser. This makes it easier to answer the question, would you say you use substances in ways or amounts that others don't. No longer are they marrying up certain words with old pictures in their heads from God knows where. The question could always be asked in our program, do you use food in ways or amounts that other people do not? With words, uh, the number one impediment for most people, I would say, are our use of the words God and higher power. Now, we're not going to, as it says in How It Works, apologize for God. However, we can point out that these words mean totally different things to different people. So much of the resistance of potential newcomers is in the words used, not the concepts. Helping, helping them understand that this is the first step to helping them is, is by helping them understand the nuances I spoke about earlier. I tell the story of how I was able to resign my position in the debating society on the topic of God and higher power years ago. When I expressed opposition to the concept of God or higher power, an old-timer I was talking to said to me, okay, leave it out. You can stay here until you're 100 years old. Nobody's ever going to tell you you have to believe in any particular thing or believe at all. And this is exactly what I tell newcomers to do. I tell them to not let it be a reason to walk out the door. The one thing I asked them to do that was asked of me was this, to keep an open mind. Now, that soft sell made all the difference for me, and I can tell them based on years in program that it wasn't a lie. I still don't believe in the kind of a Judeo-Christian higher power I was raised with, and that's fine. I tell newcomers about the many members who I respect who call themselves atheists. Of course, I think that's another label that means something different to everyone. I mean, one person's atheism can be another person's faith. To me, the question is, do you see yourself as the alpha and omega, or can you see yourself as a part of something larger in life? 
Now, I'm pretty sure all of my OA friends who call themselves atheists would choose the latter. If nothing else, they consider themselves part of a 12-step fellowship made up of people living an absent life today that they couldn't before coming to OA. As I've always said, the main belief you need to make a 12-step program work is the belief that you are the lesser power. Now, for a long time, I, I thought I wasn't, you know, quote, doing it right when it came to a belief in a higher power. Well, you know, there is no right or wrong in this arena, so don't fret if your belief or, or lack of doesn't align with others in program. While I did not believe in much of anything in the beginning, I did keep that open mind and became a seeker of the truth. Eventually, I found something that works for me in my life. I call it my higher power, but I guarantee it doesn't look like anybody else's higher power, and that's okay. I also tell new people, don't let how someone else describes their relationship with their higher power make you think you're doing it wrong. What works for them works for them, and bravo. But what works for them might not work for you or me. And to yet belabor the point some more, how everyone describes their beliefs are just words. They're not concepts. There's an old adage that says God cannot be understood with the head. It can only be felt with the heart. To me, we end up back at the words and the concepts from our past, married up to those words. I mean, we're all given a hand-me-down God or a hand-me-down atheism. Very few of us at some point before a program took the time to think about what a connection with a higher power might mean to us and what it might look like. Now, I don't want to belabor this topic as I did a whole special edition of it back in 2017 called uh, Finding a Higher Power, Some Practical Thoughts for Agnostics. So if you're interested or if you're trying to help somebody struggling with this topic, maybe point them to that. With people struggling with the concept of higher power, I say, as it says in the AA 12 and 12, the hoop you have to jump through is a lot wider than you think. So just relax. Leave the debating society for a while. You can always re-up your membership later if you like. Now, I've given talks to professionals who aren't personally in recovery who have had the mistaken impression that 12-step groups are religious in nature. Again, this is due to their prejudice against some of the words they may have seen in program literature. I go out of my way to explain the difference between religion and spirituality. I'll even use the old line, religion is for those who don't want to go to hell, but spirituality is for those who've been in hell and don't want to go back. And when talking to mental health professionals, my shorthand on 12-step programs involves explaining to them that 12-step programs are, in essence, ego reduction programs. You know, what's the one thing that's drummed into us from the big book? On page, page 62, this paragraph sums it all up. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. So sometimes I will use that ego reduction line as a way to put a spiritual program into words that a more, let's say, scientific, secular newcomer may be able to hear. Now, once they're in the rooms, they will begin to understand the nuance that the rest of us already understand. But to do that again, they have to be in the rooms. Now, the next hot button word that complicates some people's 12-step experience is the word surrender. Now, those of us who've been around for a while know the key to step one is indeed surrender. It was the theme of my last special edition. The word surrender, however, seems to tie to a host of negative concepts that many people are taught at an early age. Mostly, it can be seen as weakness. I love the line Harlan has, surrender is just 
being willing to join the winning side. And I also love Sheila J. who says, the battle is over and you lost. <laughs> now, for people struggling with the concept of surrender, I always ask the same question. Are you out of ideas? I tried over and over to rein in my disease by myself. I had a high IQ, and I figured I'd suss it out eventually. Unfortunately, along with that high IQ came a high number on the weight scale. So, you know, so much for IQ. We ask this question, is what you're doing working? Is it working to make your life rich and full and meaningful? Is it moving you towards your life's goals or causing you to move away from them? Or maybe be stagnant at best? Now, if the answer is yes, then we say, okay, your life is workable, no need to change. But if the answer is no, then we say it's unworkable, in which case we have to consider alternatives that work better. Now, since surrender sounds like such a passive word, I try and turn it around and talk about, quote, taking back control of your life from the disease. I explain our disease hijacks our brain and our decision-making. The best way to subvert that process is to get a sponsor and be willing to take direction for a while. As I was told, you drove the car into the ditch, let us help you tow it out. I also try to help people understand the process of sponsorship as well. Sometimes I have people bristle at the word sponsor. Again, in terms of wording, if you don't like the word sponsor, think of it as a person, as a guide. Again, words mean less than the concept and intention. I explain that this guide is someone who has walked the path before you who can point out the potholes and, you know, sometimes even the landmines. The concept of adding helpful guidance from someone who shares your disease is so critical. I explain that a good sponsor is simply an objective third party who is divorced from your disease. To me, that sponsor is someone who has your best interests at heart, but also doesn't have an emotional connection to what you eat or you don't eat. As we always say, you can't fix a broken brain with a broken brain. I explained that finding the right sponsor is a fit, where the style of the sponsor needs to fit the style, style of the sponsor. I explained that it's fine to change sponsors if they need to. I suggest it take some time, though, to reflect on whether this desire to change sponsors is actually a result of a true incompatibility, or is it not liking what the sponsor is suggesting you do? Because well, if I had acted on the ladder, I'd gotten through dozens of sponsors. <laughs> but if the truth be told, a lot of my growth came from doing things I didn't want to do. And then looking back and realizing it was exactly what I needed to do. See, our disease wants to get in between us and good decision making. It tries to convince us that there's negotiating to be done with the food. And this is, again, where I change the word surrender and speak about it as quote, committing totally to recovery. And committing totally to recovery is the powerful act, not a passive one. The words in Chapter 5 that talk about being willing to go to any lengths, half measures avail us nothing, are active, powerful things we do for our recovery. As strange as it may seem, I tell them, the most powerful thing you can do for your recovery is to admit powerlessness and be willing to try a different way. You know, in other words, surrender. <laughs> Another word people sometimes bristle at is the word insanity spoken of in the second step. And I want to make sure newcomers understand that what we're talking about here is a very, very narrow band of faulty thinking. 
not a generalized situation of mental illness. You know, in my last special edition, I spoke of the definition of insanity that pegs our problem perfectly. And that definition of insanity says, quote, a state of mind that prevents normal perception. I explained that while we can handle most mental functions perfectly well, in this one area, our judgment is warped by our disease. I always like to say that if you think of your brain as a computer, the disease is corrupting the data on which we make our decisions. And just on this topic, uh, as a result, putting whiskey in a glass of milk and thinking it'll prevent anything bad from happening seems like a perfectly sound and logical idea. <laughs> now, if I can get across this concept, I can then explain this is why we need a power greater than ourselves. Because many newcomers are still wrestling with the spiritual side of the program, I keep it in more human terms. There are people in our rooms who could not stop eating, despite trying everything that society threw at them as the cure for their problem. Many of them now have decades of abstinence, maintaining large losses of body weight, and, and this is key for me, and they are doing it, as the big book says, at perfect peace and ease. These people, I tell them, are doing what you cannot do, and therefore, they can be thought of as higher powers. Now, lowercase h and p, by the way. The important thing is that none of us can do this alone. As an AA old-timer told me when I was first, you know, auditing the program, he said, you know, if you could have done this yourself, you'd have done it by now. We need help because this disease and that corrupted data going into our decision-making will kill us. Having an objective third party to help us with that decision-making is crucial. Even if the newcomers don't believe in a higher power, I know that a good sponsor is their bridge to a higher power, even if they don't want to believe that or don't believe it, you know, yet. Another hot-button word is acceptance. For many, this, like surrender, it can be seen as a passive action, you know, like, oh, well, this is just the way it is. I guess I might accept, I might as well accept it. <clears throat> no, that's not how it is. Acceptance is quite often a very active action. It is a person taking care of themselves regardless of the circumstances. Acceptance is, at its base, a very selfish act. And by selfish, I mean that in the good definition of the word selfish, as in an action that helps only one person, me. It is me practicing self-care in its purest form. First, realize that almost always, if we're having to consider accepting something or not, it's something we don't like. You know, there aren't a lot of people sitting around going, oh, crap, I guess i got to accept the fact that he hit the lottery. No, we need to accept situations and actions taken against us that we don't like. There are often things that will hurtful to us. They're not things that aren't fair, things that we would never do to another person, except they are what they are. More importantly, there are almost always things we cannot change or things from the past, which, again, we cannot change. I've always heard acceptance described as being willing to let go of the hope of a different past. Let's say somebody did something hurtful to me, not inadvertently, but, you know, like really deliberately hurtful. I mean, it hurt me at the exact time it happened, or let's say that when I heard about it, as it should hurt. But that thing happened, let's say, last Thursday. That person hurt me last Thursday. 
but I have been the one hurting me since last Thursday if I don't find acceptance about it. You know, whether it's a person who hurt me or some situation I don't like happening, they both have one thing in common. I can't change it, and the chances are if it's a person, they haven't thought about it at all. And if it's a situation, it's, you know, it's devoid of directing any personal attention toward me. I'm the only one generating stomach acid about it. I'm the only one who grits his teeth whenever he thinks about it. And, you know, walking around with those feelings just doesn't feel good. And when I don't feel good, I want to make those feelings go away. And you know what makes them go away? An ice cream sundae or a pizza or any of a hundred other foods, f- foods that will dull the pain, but only for a short time. And then the pain is back again, stronger than ever. If, however, we take the active step of accepting whatever the situation is, you are saying to that person or situation, you're done bothering me. You're not worth my precious and limited time on earth. You can even do what is written in the big book in the story Freedom from Bondage, which says, pray for that person to have everything you want in your life for 30 days. And folks, it works. And finally, back to the topic of words. We usually use the word acceptance about situations we cannot control. Now, when it comes to personal hurts from other human beings, the word forgiveness can be substituted. And again, it doesn't mean we like the situation or agree with it or condone it. We're just done letting it live rent-free in our heads. Another word that's easy to misinterpret is humility. Like many of the other words people look at in program, They are married up sometimes with preconceived and erroneous thinking tied to the word itself. When I came in, the word humility meant to me that I had to go walking around like a Buddhist monk or Mother Teresa. It was also a word that was a short distance from humiliation, which is, you know, nobody's idea of a fun way to live. What I came to learn was that humility involved none of that. As I heard someone once say, Quote, humility is just having an objective view of yourself in the world. In other words, I'm not at the top of the heap, and I'm not at the bottom of the heap. I'm just one of the great middle. This means I can see myself for what I am, a human being, flaws and all. If we can begin to absorb this concept, it can help us learn to see ourselves, uh, to steal a line from Dr. Paul, through a new pair of glasses. That big book quote I read earlier goes on to say, quote, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some point in the past, we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. You know, humility can cut the legs out from underneath that nasty inner critic radio station many of us have inside us that wants to blast all day, all negative, all self-critical, all the time. Now, back in 2016, I did a special edition entitled Fear, Unearthing the Foundations of Character Defects. And I truly believe if we scrape down on each of our character defects, we will almost always find fear at the lowest layer. For me, the greatest fear that drove so many of my character defects was fear of not being enough. 
not a good enough person, not a success, not a man, not a good partner, not a good son. Fear of not being as good as you, not being as smart as you, not as attractive as you, not as thin as you, but especially the fear that all of those things will be seen by you. The people tortured the most by all of these things is us. You know, one of our main problems is we hold ourselves up to impossible standards. You know, we gauge our self-esteem based on our valuation of ourselves, and it's ourselves compared to perfection. Well, you know, there's an effort doomed to failure. You know, through humility, we can find some self-compassion and learn to judge ourselves on the human curve. Because, again, humility teaches me that I'm right in the middle of the pack, it's a pack called humanity, and it's always there, and it's always me in the middle of everything. We hear a lot about the concept of self-love in program, and while I think it's a key, this is another one of those concepts where words sometimes put people off. To some people, self-love sounds self-indulgent. It seems like an effort to not hold ourselves accountable for problems we may cause in our lives. For me, I prefer using the phrase self-acceptance. And this is tied back to the idea of judging myself on the human curve. You know, there's a major realization I had a while back that has really helped me be a little gentler on myself and quiet that inner critic that resides in me, you know, resides in all of us, actually. Anyway, that realization is that we're just these little kids running around in these adult suits. And we're all just little kids who never got the manual. You know, the manual that explains how to do life perfectly, the manual that teaches us how to handle difficult situations, difficult people with grace and aplomb, the manual on how to deal with our emotions and how to feel good about ourselves, especially when we're not perfect. And since we didn't get that manual, we spend our entire lives going through life in an unending series of trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. And as it says in that big book paragraph, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate and sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation. And that's because some of our errors in that trial and error process affect others and their errors affect us. And how do we deal with all of our errors? If you are like the way I was, you look back at them all and you beat the hell out of yourself. My inner critic was that radio station playing constantly in my head, reminding me not only of everything I was doing wrong at the moment, but possibly everything I'd ever done wrong at any point in my life. It would point out all those bad things I've ever done, all those bad decisions I'd ever made, all the ways my defects made me not the person I wanted to be. Now, the thing about this radio station is that it's very discriminating in what it tells me. It will always tell me things that help reinforce its existence as a generator of my bad self-image. It never points out all the good things about me. It never points out the good deeds I've done in my life. It never points out all the good decisions I've made. Humility teaches me an important lesson, and it's said best by my favorite paragraph in the big book. It's on page 417. But no, it's not the acceptance paragraph we know. It's the one immediately following that, where Dr. Paul says, quote, AA and acceptance has taught me there's a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us, that we're all children of God, 
that we all each have a right to be here. And when I complain about me or about you, I am complaining about God's handiwork. I'm saying I know better than God. Now, that paragraph doesn't talk about me complaining about others. It, it also reminds me it goes for complaining about myself and the feelings I might have about myself. And when I do, I'm criticizing God's handiwork. I'm saying I know better than God. And to me, that means I have to accept I'm right where I'm supposed to be today. I'd like to be a better person. Heck, I'd like to be a perfect person. But I'm not. I'm a human. And a human being and humility's job is there to remind me of that. Maybe where I am, flaws and all, is to learn something. Perhaps to not judge others until I become perfect myself. And when I ruminate think about things in the past, I am the epitome of self-centeredness. How can I be of service to others when I can't even be of service to myself? And that's why we do that fearless and thorough inventory before looking at our defects. It is an effort to say that was the old me. And with the help of the steps and the big book, I'm now a new John and I get a fresh start. You know, I have a friend who's a couples therapist. She always talks about how in an argument, the cheapest of cheap shots you can deliver is to bring up the past to someone. You know, because it's a cheap shot because there's nothing they can do about it, and its sole purpose is to make the other person feel bad. Well, this is also the case with us about ourselves. It is a cheap shot to keep running the what-ifs and the if-only-I-hads in our head. It's also important to remember that when we look back at those bad decisions, we always aggrandize the road not taken. You know, like, oh, if only I'd done this, things would be so different and so much better. Well, how can I know that? The thing I wish I had done or what I did do might have been ten times worse. To me, I did what I did because that's what I was supposed to do, whether I like it or not. There is a God, and it's not me. Again, for me, it was all about not being enough. Hence, my character defects were generated to hide those feelings of shame and unworthiness. And of course, many of those character defects involve doing things that caused me to then have even more reasons to feel bad about myself. One more thing that humility has also done is helped me remain teachable. When I was younger, when somebody warned me about something, I took it with a grain of salt because, you know, I'm smarter than you. As a result, I often did exactly what the person warned me not to do and with the results they tried to tell me about. You know, and I now understand that old adage that smart people learn from their mistakes, but people with wisdom and humility can learn from other people's mistakes. You know, a moment ago, I spoke about another set of words that I don't think serve us well in recovery and that are often off-putting to newcomers. And those words are character defects. You know, to those of us who are raised in dysfunctional households or who had trauma in their past, they would be better named defense mechanisms or coping mechanisms. We didn't just wake up one day and start utilizing them for no reason. They served a purpose. For many of us, these weren't insane behaviors. These were sane behaviors developed within an insane environment. Now, I always like to use the phrase, quote, we didn't come out of the womb with dot, 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 to clients. We didn't come out of the womb with these feelings of anxiety or depression or low self-worth or any of those many other negative feelings we have about ourselves. 
nor did we come out of the womb with our defects, which in my business are generally known as maladaptive behaviors. These were coping mechanisms that were developed for a reason, but they no longer serve us. They are now instead character liabilities. But the good news is if they can be learned, they can, through working the steps and the help of a higher power, they can be unlearned. First, however, we need to follow the exact progression of the steps, which are laid out in a perfect order. In order to work on our character defects, we first have to determine what they are. By the way, I'm going to continue to call them character defects because that's, again, the shorthand we all know. I explain to the steps to the newcomer and show their perfect logic and progression as a process of change. It's important to explain to a newcomer that the fourth step inventory isn't just a way to sell more notepads. It's a way to go into that scary attic of our minds and clean out all that junk so we no longer have to carry around that package. When I was done with my first fifth step, I was no longer John 1.0, a victim of his upbringing. I was the start of John 2.0, the author of his new life. I was the person learning to live a better life through the 12 steps, no longer having to see myself as a piece of garbage. Steps six and seven, of course, were to help me identify those maladaptive behaviors and work to minimize them to the best of my abilities. Now, those maladaptive behaviors were really easy to identify because they were usually embedded in the last column of my inventory. You know, make a quick sidebar for a second about faith, and in particular, faith in the program and the process. A lot of things that will help us in the steps aren't understood until they're completed and we look back at it. For many of us, doing a four-step can be a daunting and scary task, but we do it anyway because people we respect told us it's the way to freedom. It isn't until we walk out of finishing our fifth step that we see what those people were telling us. Well, it's the same in the, with the sixth step. We develop a lot of these character defects as defense mechanisms, and they've been with us most of our lives. Now the steps tell us we need to have them be ready to have them removed, as it says in the big book, quote, root and branch. And, you know, there's very little wiggle room in the word entirely when mentioned in the phrase, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Well, this is where faith in the process has to come in again. We need to have faith that these defects, which once served us, will be supplanted by more constructive ways of dealing with life and its challenges if we are willing to let go of the old ones. Then it's my job to recognize them when I do them and try my best to not have them happen again. This is my side of the bargain here. You know, personally, I don't believe God is the defect fairy who comes down in step seven and removes all these defects without any work on my part. As I often say, God is my partner in recovery, but not my servant. And in working on these defects, I do my best to bring down their presence in my life as low as possible. And then if God decides it's time, he'll remove them completely, and I can be totally done with them. An important thing about trying to change these behaviors is, having just done an inventory, I don't want to continue to do things that will have to go on my next inventory. Another phrase that, that baffled me when I heard it the first time, and actually I heard people say it over and over at meetings, was the phrase, turn it over. 
You know, I used to joke when people invoke that phrase again and again that, you know, if you turn over something twice, it's right side up again. But seriously, I know now this meant turn it over to your higher power. And in the beginning, it was hard because I, like so many newcomers, didn't have a fully formed view of my higher power. Also, many people I know don't have a concept of a higher power that's one that you can easily turn over problems and decisions to. However, whether you do or you don't have that kind of a concept of higher power, the concept of turning it over starts in the same place for everyone. Being willing to lose your death grip on the problem itself. In other words, being willing to see control of the situation and the possible outcome to a problem. You know, my aha moment on this confusion concerning turn it over came one day when I was at a step meeting reading on step three uh, from the AA 12 and 12. In that chapter, it spoke about the concept of opening a door. Suddenly, I got this mental picture of a wide gate opening, and it was removing the blockage of self-will, opening the gate to God's will. In other words, I needed to remove myself from the path containing both the problem and the solution. I needed to put my self-will on the shelf and let go of the outcome of any situation that I previously had some emotional investment in. The result of this was part of my goal in life, a calmer life, a more peaceful existence, and more time to devote to other things in my life that were more important. To do this, of course, requires some faith, either in that clearly defined higher power or faith in the concept that everything's happening the way it's supposed to, and I don't have to like it or agree with it. Now, some people not in program may say that thinking is delusional. And, you know, maybe it is. Maybe we're all delusional in believing in a higher power. But you know what? My belief has led me to have a more peaceful life with less stress and better opinion of myself. So that in and of itself for me is reason enough. Now, there's a couple of other words that trip up newcomers and veterans alike. And these words are slip and relapse. Now, I came from old-time AA where the two words were interchangeable. But in working in the substance abuse field for a while now, many professionals choose to see these activities as two different things. To them, a common occurrence among people leaving treatment is to have a lapse in judgment, in other words, a slip. They were committed to recovery, but like Fred in the story from More About Alcoholism, they got bit right in the middle of their little mental blank spot. And in many of these cases, if they can recognize what went wrong and try to set up safeguards so it doesn't happen again, they can right the ship and move on, hopefully to not slip again. A relapse, on the other hand, is when a person heads right off the deep end and returns to the behavior that landed them in the rehab in the first place. But the saddest of situations is when a person has had just a slip, but then is so ashamed, feeling they've thrown away everything, that that slip turns into a full relapse. Now, this is indeed a conundrum in a way that can only be dealt with between a person and their sponsor. You know, I've had sponsors, sponsees tell me about some, you know, not too sparkling eating behaviors and then ask me, should I reset my abstinence? And my answer is this, which will stop the relapse process in its tracks? And this is important because both answers could be true. 
A person with perfectionistic tendencies may say, well, heck, I'm no longer perfect. I'm going to have to reset my time, so I might as well go get my money split. Now, the trouble with that thinking is it doesn't acknowledge the first step. If you're like me, I can certainly decide when to go out, but I can't have any guarantee of when or if I'll ever get abstinent again. For me, personally, I think I've used up all of my get-out-of-hell-free cards. Now, the other edge of the sword is the person who is willing to forgive him or herself and continue to move forward. There's the old story of a person bicycling from Los Angeles to New York that falls off the bicycle in Nebraska. Does he take the bike back to Los Angeles to start again? Well, maybe. If, on the other hand, a person can see it as just an unforced error and learn from it, that choice might help that person find long-term recovery. The only problem is that if it happens again and again and again, at a certain point, you're not showing yourself self-forgiveness. You're just letting your denial drive the bus. If, in either case, resetting your abstinence time is part of your decision, lose it. In the big picture, nobody cares about your time but you. At the most, some of your friends in meetings. And if they're your real friends, they'll be there to support you because they realize this is a disease that can recur in anybody at any time. Now, here's an important thing about resetting your abstinence date. You may lose the days, but not the experience and the lessons learned. Whatever happened can strengthen your continued abstinence and help others if you talk about it. And again, these numbers are only of interest to fellow OA members who see you a few hours a week. But if not resetting causes you a relapse, your problems will, if you're like me, become very apparent physically, and that affects you the whole week, not just when you're in meetings. And here's the most important thing about counting days in program. The program doesn't give two hoots about the number. The disease. I'm sorry, the disease doesn't give two hoots about the number. All of my time and program hasn't built up any antibodies that will prevent a relapse. You know, we're all just people climbing up the outside of the Empire State Building. And it doesn't matter if you're on the 10th floor or the 50th floor or the 90th floor. We're all just one, you know, let go from disaster. In fact, the higher up you are, the bigger the splat you'll make. I also want to talk about a word that I forbid sponsees to use, and that word is can't. I can't eat sugar. I can't eat white flour. I can't eat pizza. Of course you can. We live in a world where very few people are more than a couple minutes away from any of that stuff, and there will always be enough so that you'll never deplete the supply. I mean, I ate a lot of pizzas when I was in my disease, but there's still a lot of pizzerias around. I didn't close any of them due to depleted supplies, although God knows I tried. Instead of can't, find another phrase that works better. I choose not to. Or even acknowledging the allergy of the body by reminding yourself, I'm allergic to those foods. You know, whichever ones of those are your alcoholic foods. And if you know, if you have allergies like mine, there's one undeniable symptom, I break out in fat. It's important to take ownership of your recovery. Framing abstinence as involving things we can't do is setting up abstinence as an authority figure that we will eventually rebel against. It's vitally important to see abstinence as an act of pure self-compassion. Your disease always wants to frame abstinence as deprivation. 
Well, what about all that deprivation we had when we were in the food? We deprived ourselves of friends and family and social events and experiencing this wonderful world. More importantly, it, it deprived us of true happiness, of growth, of loving self-acceptance. And I've got to ask you, what food is worth giving that up for? One last little word dispute. Am I recovered or recovering? Well, guess what? I'm staying out of that intellectual food fight. You can call yourself stopping between binges for all I care. It still comes down to how are you working your program, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Are you not abusing yourself with food? Are you going through life in a happy, content, self-accepting manner? Are you being a decent human being to all around you, even when some of them might not be nice to you? If so, you can call yourself whatever you want in my book. So in wrapping up, not everyone is going to have a problem with all of these words and phrases I've spoken about, but I wanted to cover all of the possibilities that could come up, or at least, you know, all the ones I could think of. Now, hopefully, some of this talk has given you a new way to think about some of the ways we reference certain aspects of the program. Now, perhaps you already see this way, but it might help you reframe things for newcomers or sponsees who either don't understand or are having problems with these parts of the program. Chances are, again, these are problems based on their preconceived notions of the words and the phrases that are involved in finding recovery. Now, of course, Recovery doesn't require words or phrases. In fact, it requires the opposite. It requires action. But if helping people find a way to get into that action involves showing them a different way of looking at things, then anything we can do to help them get there is worth the time. And remember, somebody helped us, we helped someone else. That's the beauty of 12-step programs. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, John, for such a beautiful presentation. Captivating, thought-provoking, so valuable. Another gem for the archives from John Kay. Thank you so much for all that you gave us this morning. Share ID for this presentation, 19,576. That's 19576. John's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question-answer segment. You can pose a question, questions only, to John by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Chris Dues S. Chris Felicia, Felicia, Felicia. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Sue's S. Sue's this is S. Larry K. Hey, Larry. Gotcha. Hey. Anyone else with a question wants to get in this group? Okay, well, let's get started. We've got Chris G. Hey, Pete. Thank you. Okay. We've got Chris G., Felicia, Suze, S., Larry K., and Pete B. Let's get started with Chris, please. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, everyone. Uh, Thank you for your... uh, 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 Yes, thank you. Okay, so I said thank you. Um, We'll do it... (laughs) 
please, uh, would you please, this is Christy. I do live in Tennessee. And uh, would you please um, explain the word pause? We pause several times throughout the day. How How is your definition of pause? Thank you. Sure. More than happy to help. Um, it's funny. In my business, and, and I'm, I work with a couple of different disciplines, things Larry would probably know, DBT and ACT. And one of their main things is something, the buzzword we use a lot, mindfulness. And I always tell people what mindfulness means is stop. <laughs> stop. Take a moment. Think about things. And sometimes it involves being in situations where there's conflict or something going on. And the reality is there's essentially two parts of our brain. The one that's sort of the amygdala that works almost like an animal. It'll react very quickly, whereas the, the, you know, the, the prefrontal cortex is the part that reigns in our impulsivities and things. But a lot of times, that if you're in a bad situation, that, that animal brain is running your, your life, not you. And so the idea of finding a way to stop sometimes, and I have my old sponsor, Carl, used to joke about me having problems at work. He used to say, thank God there's bathrooms. They can't follow you into the stall. <laughs> but the point being is to find a way to just stop and, and consider things before reacting. I love the line, I think I heard in Eleanor, act, don't react. You know, don't be a puppet of somebody else. Be, again, the author of your life and decide how to handle things. You know, um, and more and more in life, this is so hard because sometimes your actions can be instantaneous. They can be instantaneous about people 3,000 miles away from you. You know, in the AA 12 and 12 is a line, restraint of pen and tongue. But I've amended that to our modern times to say, restraint of pen and tongue and send button. <laughs> because so many times I have done things like that because I misread an email and uh, sent out and then had to make amends, or it's happened in the opposite way. I find now if I have, if I need, if it's really frustrating me, uh, there's an old trick of, of a Harry Truman, who was an American president. He had a bad temper. And whenever he would get mad, he would sit down and write a letter to whoever he was mad at. You dear so-and-so, you dirty son of a blah, 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 blah. And when he finished, he put the letter in his desk drawer. The fact of acting to get that stuff out helped. And so I know I've sometimes written emails or responses to people, and then I put it in the draft folder. And I say, look, if this is a good thought, it'll be a good thought later. And invariably, when I reread it before I send it, I either change it quite a bit so that I can get my idea across as opposed to the wall going up on the other person. And it, or sometimes I just delete it all together because I realized that, you know, it isn't kind, it's not helpful, et cetera. And so for me, this whole idea of pause is, again, act, don't react. And so find a place. If you find yourself starting to get revved up or if things are even starting to just bother you and you're spinning out, go somewhere, take a moment. Remember what's important to you in life. And I'll bet you it's not whatever little thing is going on at that moment. I hope that helps. Thank you, Chris. Felicia, your turn. Hi, can you hear me? 
Yes. Okay. Hi, my name is Shamisha. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I hear some pots or something in the background. Yeah, we're going to somebody take care of that. Go ahead, Salisha. We'll, we'll work on okay. that. Go Can ahead. you hear me now? Can you hear I me? hear you. Yes. Oh, okay, good. Hi, thank you so much for your talk today. It was so helpful. Um, one of the things you talked about is the difference between relapse and a slip and how you reframe that. Um, so I uh, was abstinent for a number of years with a 100-pound weight loss, and in April of 2010, I um, I relapsed with the sugar and flour, proceeded to gain 100 pounds, and it's now 12 years later, and I'm still in relapse. How? And I feel hopeless. How do I reframe that so that I keep going down the rabbit hole? Mm. Well, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I would say obviously gaining 100 pounds is, falls outside that that line of slip <laughs> into a relapse. Again, for me, I had to find a way to. F- you know, I always say your abstinence needs to be strong, but it shouldn't be brittle. You know that I I talk about a food plan where the metaphor uses standing astride a steeply pitched roof. You know, like one of those ones in Vermont. And you're standing with one foot on either side of the roof, and you can roll off in either direction. One way you can roll off is to be, you know, super forgiving of yourself. Oh, I did that, but I'm not going to beat myself up. Oh, yeah, I ate that, and I'm not going to beat myself up. And you roll off the roof into full relapse that way. But the other way can be just as dangerous, which is I ate a pea I shouldn't have. Well, what the heck, I might as well go have a sheet cake now, you know. Lady Nanette from our area has a great line. She says that perfectionism is the conjoined twin of compulsive eating. You know, with all of these other diseases, they're almost all binary. I'm either taking a drink or I'm not. I'm shooting drugs or I'm not. I'm doing this or I'm not. But with food, it is just so much harder because there is a big gray area. And the key for me is to find somebody that you have you have trust with have somebody who who has your best interests at heart and then be willing to to go over that situation with them and and take some advice for a while like again that for me it was part of the key um i just i always believe that god works through people you know i always joke that uh I said if it was, you know, I love the fact that there's multiple layers of higher powers, plural, in program. God, myself, and another human being. As I always say, uh, you know, I could go off, me and God could go off, and I can meditate and come back being uh, convinced that chocolate's a vegetable, <laughs> you know. But then I call my sponsor, and he's like, eh, not today, you know. Um, because, see, that's the problem. I'm a compulsive eater, you know, and I don't always know what's the voice of God and what's the voice of my higher, my disease, just doing a really good impression of my higher power. And so the one thing I would say is you need to find somebody who you can have, you can have, be open with. To me, the key to a sponsor, you got to be able to talk to them about everything. You know, you got to be willing. If, if you mess up, you mess up. I always tell my sponsees, it's fine. If you have a problem, please tell me about it. I guarantee you, if you relax, I won't gain a pound. <laughs> I'm just here to help. So maybe that'll help in some way to try and really hook up with somebody who has your best interest to heart and then step back for a while, take, take direction. Thank you, 
Alicia, for your question. Suze S., your turn. Hi, I'm the Pots and Pans lady. Sorry about this. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it automatically went back to mute, but apparently not. Um, anyway, uh, I'm Suze. Good morning. Uh, that was great, John. Thank you so much. Um, my sister was also a substance abuse counselor, so I, it, she was tremendous. So I really appreciate your your uh, perspective and and your your guidance and words you know semantics 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 it's like location 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 sometimes for me but uh, i'm I'm big on words um one thing by the way uh i did get followed into the bathroom with my phone when i <laughs> cell phones i got a phone mm-hmm. in the bathroom i came out i got yelled at for not answering the phone <laughs> i was like well, i was busy and they said you still should have gotten the phone so it happened yeah. but uh, anyway uh the um, you said something about um, and, and I didn't catch it. I'm sorry, it, but it sounded great. Um, the that you you wanted, I believe that you wanted to go ahead with your life and you know progress with your life. And there was a word that was holding, possibly a perception of a word that was holding that back, or uh, the word was indicating um, something that would hold us back. I'm very interested in going forward with my life. Um, I just came from a breakup uh, that I realized that after five days of walking into walls after the breakup that I was living that person's life, not mine. So I'm wondering what um, word or perception that I'm um, missing or that would help me better go forward in my life. Please. Oh. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm trying. To, I'm just trying to think of what it was I said exactly. I just know I, yeah, the things I'm ruminating on, which is, trust me, rumination in, in our business, it, it, it's a killer with both depression and anxiety and everything. To sit there and constantly rerun everything from the past, or you yeah. know that, it's it it it's crazy making. You know, the, the French have a word that doesn't exist in the English language, and it, the word means that feeling you get when you just walked away from an argument and thought of what you should have said. <laughs> and again, we will do that in life. And to be able to just say enough, enough, I will always be able to find things to beat myself up for. And to realize that this is where, you know, I, I say sometimes, you know, as you're working programs, sometimes you almost feel like you're fighting yourself sometimes and and to remember that these are these are patterns that are so deeply ingrained in us um that it's almost like driving on a on a dirt road that has a really bad rut and you you really have to work to get out of that rut and to take an active thing so find if you find yourself ruminating to find a way to stop it you know and catch yourself and go this is not helpful you know, there's an old trick. There's mainly done like back in the 90s with, in psychology about putting a rubber band around your wrist. And if you find yourself doing that, you like snap it for a second. Supposedly Pavlovian, it'll help. I don't know about that. But just the idea that, you know, I don't know, that whole idea, you know, you're not what you, meaning either the person or the situation, it's, it's not worth my time. You know, I, I've, I've hit an age where I know life is finite. And do I want to spend it running back over and doing the instant replay over and over 
about the past or do I want to take advantage of all the days that are left? And for me, that's what I choose to do. I've, again, if you've done a really good fourth and fifth step and an eighth and ninth, you, you, you've hopefully been able to clear that crap out and move forward. And, and you know, if, if you haven't totally cleared it out, think, okay, did I, did I do, do enough to, you know, to put this to bed? Because that's why they came up with those steps is to help us move forward and not have all those thoughts in our head. I don't know if that helps, but that was what I, I came up with. Thank you. Thanks, Suze. Larry Kay, your turn. Oh, there I am. <laughs> hey, Leah, thank you so much. Um, John, oh, my gosh. I, I wanted to ask you a question, but it's an outside issue on how your career in comedy is uh, benefited you in your career in counseling. <laughs> I'm not <gonna> ask you that. <laughs> the irony is, is there, right? But, uh, right. but, but actually what I wanted to speak to you about, John, uh, thank you so much for your, for your special editions. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, was about, you spoke about fear. Uh, can you speak to, um, how shame is such a powerful, um, factor, how it impacts our trajectory in, in, in someone's life and certainly in their, in their recovery. Can you speak to that a little bit on the idea of shame? Sure, sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, let me just first address the first thing. I, I joked, I said, the thing that's helped me most in my comedy career with therapy is my improv training. To be able to, if you've ever run groups, you know they can go sideways real quick. And to be able to find a way and, and getting things across in a light way. Because part of this is to show people who are, are new that it, life doesn't have to be that way. My favorite two pages in the big book are 132 and 133, where it talks about we are, you know, we are not a glum lot. We absolutely insist upon enjoying life. And I think a lot of times finding a way to say it a little with humor makes it, it work better. Um, but yeah, she, uh, you know, <clears throat> there's a, there's a lady, I won't mention her name because it's an outside thing. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube, and you probably know who I'm talking about. Always talks about the difference between guilt and shame. And the idea that guilt is I did something bad, and shame being I am something bad. And for a lot of us, that got put in at an early age. Again, we don't come out of the room feeling guilty. There's no baby sitting in a nursery at a hospital going, oh, I'm so embarrassed at how I did that birth, right? So somewhere along the way for, you know, for a lot of us, it was parents who who did that. And maybe not even in a malicious way, it may be the way they were raised and they were raised. And you end up with that intergenerational trauma because nobody ever stopped and go, wow, this probably isn't helpful, <laughs> you know? And, and the idea of saying that if you can't find a way to stop that, and again, I love that paragraph from, from 417 that says, hey, I, I have to stop criticizing myself because I'm, I'm here. I'm on a journey. I am where I am. You know, the other thing that <clears throat> we talk about on that whole mindfulness thing is, besides stop, is, I remember I, I, re, I got really upset one day when I was newly sober and I was on the phone and I was sort of ranting at my, my, my sponsor about it. I don't even remember what it was. But it was something that involved something that wasn't in the room, you know. And he, he said, stop, stop. And he goes, look down. And I go, what? He goes, look down. Where are your feet? Meaning I have to remember 
that in this moment, nothing's going on. It's all, most of it's going on in my head. Yes, there are occasions where you may have something going on in the room, but most of the time it isn't. I love, there was a line I heard, of, <laughs> I spoke up at a thing in Oakland, and, and the lady said, her sponsor told her, you're not allowed to have arguments with people who are not currently in the room, <laughs> which I always love because I would run that by. And for me, the shame, again, the, the key to working on shame is the idea of seeing myself as a human being. I spent so much time just beating the crap out of myself because I'm, I'm supposed to be perfect. It's okay if you're not perfect, but I can. And I can also see there was a little ego in that too, you know, a little ego in that, well, I hold myself up to a higher standard because I'm better than you, and, you know. But then sometimes it's, it's just, I know one of the other things I, I would do is, is because I felt so bad about myself and I did have that fear of not being enough. I strove for perfection only because that's the only way I could prove to myself that I was at least as good as you, because there's nothing past perfection. And, and today to just be able to go, God, I wasted so much time uh, and it wasn't helpful. Again, you know, in any business school, they'll teach people who are wanting to be managers that the worst possible way is negative reinforcement. And I just was so into negative reinforcement with myself thinking, and I think there was part of me that thought I was motivating myself, but I realized all it did is make me feel lousy about myself and it, it didn't really help the situation. So I've had to work on the shame. I shouldn't lose guilt because then I become a sociopath. <laughs> you know, if I do something wrong, I should feel a little bad about it. And the great thing about program is that 10th step is, a, is wonderful to, Try and make the amends as quickly as possible so you don't have to walk around with it. Oh, I screwed up again, you know. Anyway, Larry, I don't know if that helps, but that's my thoughts on that. Thank you, John. Thanks, Larry. Nice, nice hearing you, man. <laughs> Thank you, Larry, for your question. Pete B., you're up. Oh, thanks, Leah. Thanks for your service. Appreciate it. And, uh, John, thanks so much for your presentation. I always love how well thought out, articulate your message is, and it definitely has depth and weight. And uh, so I, I, I would just, I was hoping you could help me uh, frame or perhaps reframe the term, uh, our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how they may, and how we may help meet their needs. Hmm. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think, well, you know, just going back to something we were talking about a few minutes ago about rumination, if I'm out there helping you, I don't have a lot of time to sit around thinking about me. I mean, that's the thing about, like, rumination about things from the past or, you know, uh, projections about the future. Um, they all are me-centered. I'm the, you know, the whirlpool of self that's sucking everything else in. And I had an old sponsor who used to say, John, we seem to have lost you. Star one to unmute. That's weird. <laughs> Did you, you hear me up there? I hear you now. The phone was sitting on the table, nowhere near me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know where, where you lost me, but 
I was telling the story about how when uh, a sponsor used to say, if you're really upset and there's a party that wants to go eat, you go and you pick up the phone and you call people. And when you get somebody on the line, the first thing you say is, how are you doing? You know, not starting on your tale of woe. How are you doing? Because sometimes that is the, the best way of getting out of yourself. I mean, all of these things, all these disciplines in life, whether it's AA or almost any other religious discipline, it really centers on not being, you know, the center of the world, of trying to get out of yourself, and that it will make you feel better. A, it will pull you out of the rumination, but B, you'll start to, when you do things for others, it makes a big difference. Just that line from, um, oh God, what's the name of the writing? But it says, uh, just for, oh, just for today, just for today, I will do so in a good turn and not get found out. And it took me a long time to realize what that was about. It is about doing something good for good's sake. And when you do it, and you don't do it with, oh, look how wonderful I am, but you just do it for good's sake, it makes you feel better. It makes you feel like, you know, you're, you are trying to be a good person. And, and that trying to get out of yourself as much as you can is the way to, to start to change. And, you know, the great thing, and I'll stop on this, is, is I always, again, I, I say this program is always action first, thinking about it later. I got taught in an early age about service, 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 service. And uh, in the beginning, I did it, you know, with a grumble. You know, oh, this is just your way to get free, free labor. And it isn't, again, like all those other things, it isn't until you come out the other side and look backwards that you realize how, what service does for you. It gets you out of yourself. It isn't just about free labor. It is about helping others and remembering for me, one of the reasons I do services, I'm just, I thank God I'm alive now. You know, if I was alive 100 years ago, I'd be dead. <laughs> That's actually a funny one. Uh, but I would have been dead because there was no OA. There was no AA. Um, and so the idea of getting out and helping other people I, I just think that's so important, and I think that's why they munch up those two things in Step 12. I've often joked that in a lot of ways, I think the Step 12 could have been two different steps, but they didn't want to have 13 steps because everybody's superstitious. But it talks first about, you know, you know, turning around, you know, having had a spiritual awakening, you know, we help others and practice these principles in all our affairs. And obviously it's these principles, it's the old steps, but there's probably a reason that last part about helping others is right up against it. So I don't know if that helps. Thank you, Pete, for your question. Let's take a few more questions here. Star 1 to unmute if you'd like to pose a question. I need your name, including the first initial of your last name. Jory M. Jackie. Jack W. Who's from Ohio? Karen S. Karen S. And then after Karen, I have Dory M. Karen S. I missed somebody. And then Jack W. Christina R. Christina R. Let's try to get four in. Beginning with Dory M., please. Good morning. Um, thank you so much, John. My name is Jory um, from Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, my question is, how can you open a conversation 
with someone outside the program that you know is suffering. My concern is that, like, I'll sound like I'm proselytizing and, like, turn them off. Hmm. Well, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I always say that, that you ha- that's a minefield. You have to be very, very careful. Because, you, you know, it could be somebody you really care about and you want to help. But as soon as you start saying something like, you know, you know, I go to this program and it's helped me with my weight. Maybe you want to think about right there. Go, what, you can call me fat, you know, or something that uh, I joke about. It, it, it almost has to be like fishing. You got to throw the hook out and, and, and hit the reel really slowly so that it's just moving enough that they might bite. And, and one of the things I've, I've done, especially with people who uh, I know need some help, you know, if they, I'll find a way to slip in something like, or like if they offer me something, they go, oh, I'm sorry. You should have seen me when I was 100 pounds more than I, was, I am now. That, you know, sort of sets off a little light bulb. Oh, you were 100 pounds more. Because I don't know about you, but when somebody would say that to me when I was in the food, I'd want to know what they did. And to find a way in that way, because otherwise, you know, again, it's a program of attraction. And, and I, I know that that's, you know, one of those places, you know, if, if you can find a way to just mention what you're in. I know, I don't know, so I hear more banging of pots or something. Um, um, uh, when I was first in the other program, we, we got taught how to do what they call 12-step calls, which is the 12-step calls when you go out and see somebody. They call and they said they need help, and we would literally go out to see them. And uh, rule number one is you never went alone. You went with two people. And then the thing that they taught me was when you go to meet a person and you want to try and help them with program, you say hi, you tell them your story, and then you shut up. <laughs> because they're either going to grab it or they're not. And sometimes you may just say enough that they won't get it today. But in five years, that thought will pop in their head, and maybe then they'll get better. So I don't know if that helps. Thank you, Jory. Good, Karen good answer. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks. we got someone washing dishes, so please mute yourself if you're doing that task. Karen asked your <laughs> turn. <laughs> your turn for a question. Hi, my name is Karen S. from Ohio. I'm a compulsive overeater. And my question is about... Um, I have a food addiction, but I also have bipolar, and um, I've been struggling with, um, I, I guess, just with the food, and I just can't seem to get it because my emotions are so out of control, and I wondered what you suggest that might help that I could get started. Hmm. Thank you. Oh, that's, sure. That's a really good question. Now, again... You know, uh, it comes under the thing that's somewhere in the big book about we're not doctors, but I am a big believer if you are finding yourself with, with lots of really bad mood swings, you want to see a psychiatrist and get the right meds. You may have meds and they may not be working. One of the trouble with psychiatric meds is they start working and they just stop on a dime for no reason. Um, again, it, you know... It's one of those things that almost you almost have to put that outside that and say, you know, one of the things OA really does is is it treats the symptom first. You know, that's the thing about 12-step 
programs, they, they got to treat the symptom first. You got, you got to put the food down before you can do all the stuff that will hopefully help you not want to pick it back up. And, and, you know, it's, I don't know how to say this. Uh, if I had bipolar, I can only say for me, it would be a really good excuse to keep going out over and over. Uh, I don't know whether, you know, the wonderful thing about vision is there's so many people on the meetings every morning that there's probably someone who has gone through what you are going through and can help you navigate it if they've gone through it and are, are abstinent. You know, that's the great thing about, you know, it takes a village, at least with me, I need a village, is that, you know, there's some things I just, I can't, my, I can talk to my sponsor about it. One of the best things that ever happened to me once was I was complaining. I was, you know, in a relationship and it wasn't going well and she's this and she's that. And he's, he just looked at me and said, you know, John, I just can't help you here. I am a gay man who hasn't been in a relationship in 15 years. You've got to go talk to somebody else. And I love the fact that he didn't have an ego thing that he had to figure it out. And it's the same here. You, if you can find somebody who sort of has that situation, and ask them how they navigate it. I know this happens a lot with women going into pregnancy. And the great thing about that is there's plenty of women who've gone through pregnancy and went through it absently. And they, the person starting to go through it can talk to them about how, how to navigate that minefield. That's the thing I'd suggest. Since I don't have it, I, I can't be an expert for you on it. And hopefully, maybe that'll help. Thank you, Karen, for your question. Christina R., your turn. Thank you so much. That was so wonderful. I took so many notes. I really appreciate you. And my question is, um, when you were talking about um, abstinence being an act of self-compassion, and then I missed um, the other part of that. I was trying to take notes really fast. If you could just um, repeat that because I have really struggled with that thinking of it just um, you know just that diet mentality and and just feeling like I wanted to rebel against like you know this that diet type of mentality so yeah. just uh, repeat that thank you so much sure sure um I for a while was in a different food program that had a very sort of structured this is this is what you eat this is what you don't eat and you know. They promised it would give me something, which it did, which was my weight loss. And for a long time, that worked. And then I started seeing it as a an authority figure. And um, uh, they have a line, in, they, and I'm going to butcher this, but they're like, we we have free meals today, nothing in between except diet soda, sugar-free gum, and I forget what the rest of it is. Well, I ended up coming back to OA, and I heard this old-timer named Ray, who's he's still around. He's like 90-something. I think he's got 50-plus years of, of abstinence. And he used to get up and go, my abstinence today is I eat, I eat as much as I want, whatever I want, whenever I want, if I'm willing to pay the price. And today I am not willing to pay the price. And so I eat three weighed and measured meals with nothing in between except diet soda. In other words, he says the exact same thing. But the difference is Ray is working Ray's food plan, Ray's thing. He's not working somebody else's. And that's the thing that has to be done. We have to take the ownership. I, I, you know, I talk to people about that in, in treatment. I go, hey, uh, you're going to be out of treatment at some point. Nobody's going to be looking over your shoulder. Nobody is going to be able to 
help you see what's right for you. And again, like I said, my disease wants to frame abstinence as the deprivation. You know, but it's, I always say it's like the disease is holding up a balance sheet, the pros and the cons, except it's whited out one side, you know, the pros of abstinence. Um, oh, somebody else is on my list. Um, the, the thing, <laughs> it's really just Let me clear the line here. Okay. Okay, we're back? Yes. Okay, I was just saying that my disease wants to hold up a balance sheet of the why to be abstinent and why not to be abstinent, but it wipes out the pluses and it only shows, oh, you poor thing, look at this, you know, looking at the, uh, the balance sheet. You don't get to eat such and such anymore. Oh, look at this, they, they've come out with, uh, you know, dark chocolate Reese's since you stopped eating them. Oh, look, they've done this, they've done that. It never shows me the other side where it says, oh, you poor thing. You don't get winded walking up three steps anymore. Oh, you poor thing. You don't wear your pants out uh, because your thighs rub together. Oh, you poor thing. You don't sit alone on a Saturday night, you know, with nothing to do except you and Ben and Jerry anymore. It doesn't want to show that. And so it's always trying to show me deprivation instead of us pulling back and going, well, what, how much did I deprive myself? You know, and, and I forget who said it. I heard somebody once say, I'm not as much afraid of dying from this disease as I am of living the life of the living dead. Meaning I get up, I go to work, I come home, I turn the TV on, I eat my, my binge foods, I go to bed, I get up, I you know, just do it over and over. And that's what my disease does. Most people's disease makes their world so small. In this big, beautiful world, your disease makes it so small. And the more you can see, this is for you. Again, nobody's ever going to be around you all the time. And if, if you are in a place of going, oh, I can sneak this, that, that's a bad place to be because you're always going to be able to do that. And to find a way of saying, I want to do this. I, want, I choose not to do this because I know where it goes and I can't fall for the lies it's told me over and over, number one of which being, well, I can do just a little today. You know, that, that, that didn't work for me and I think it doesn't work for a lot of people. So finding a way, I'll just wrap up with saying it's about taking ownership of your own recovery. Don't let it be anything where you have to say you can't because that's just the clock is ticking on you going out. Hope that helps. Thanks, Christina R. and Jack W. Yes, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. could pose your question quickly, we'll get in it in before we close. Jack W. Thank you. Uh, this is Jack W. from Florida. I'm a compulsive overeater. Thank you very much, John. It was uh, just a wonderful job you did. Um, and I wish I'd have took notes because I have memory lapses but anyway i would have should have could have what what i did i'm I'm retired i uh so i found myself home with my wife all the time where i used to just have a few hours in the evening Mm -hmm. and as i and multiple addicted as it's like that game whack-a-mole i put down the food and here comes another head popping up of addiction put it down 
and you know then I want to go to eBay, put it down, and then I, I have to deal with Jack, and I. Uh, so what I'm getting at is uh, maybe dysregulation of emotions uh, or being adolescent emotionally and overreacting, but my it seems. Hello, I think we lost you there. Yeah. Jack, can we pose a question in the interest of time, please? Star 110, mute, Jack. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do is I'll try and answer what I think he was going to say. <laughs> First of all, go ahead. Yeah. The, the wonderful thing about vision for you is if you miss something within a certain amount of time, I don't know how quick Tony gets it up, um, you can listen to this again and take notes if you want. Um, and it's one of the reasons I pointed people to some of my older talks because I didn't want to uh, repeat myself a lot. But whack-a-mole is the problem. And, and I know that for a, a lot of people, what the basis of that still is 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 I used to call I called it fear of dead air. On uh, I used to do stuff in radio, and the the one thing AM radio you're never supposed to do is have what they call dead air. In other words, silence. And I think a lot of us have that fear of just being alone and are looking for some way to distract all the time. And I, I can only speak for me. I. I and I believe in this, and I know Bill Wilson believed in in outside help. And because my I needed to put the things down, my my drinking, my drugs, my my food, but that took care of it from one direction, which is symptoms. I needed to come at it from a different direction. Why do I keep wanting to do this? Why do I keep wanting to bounce from food to shopping to gambling to sex to whatever? And there's something there that isn't being dealt with. And, and what that is, I can't tell you. I, uh, I always tell the story, uh, and I'll wrap it up there, um, that I, when I was still in the food, I was going through this horrible relapse. I, I knew there was something going on, and I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. I'm, I'm in therapy. I can't see it. And as soon as the food was down for a while, it, it, I saw why I was eating. It was because I was in a, I was in a marriage I didn't want to be in. And I'm a, a child of alcoholics, caretaker personality, and I could not imagine wanting to hope break that off. And so I kept putting the distraction of food in between me and that. And and it and once I I dealt with that, and it all ended up happy for everybody. Um, I was able to move on. But a lot of times there's there's something of an engine of relapse going on and whatever that engine is, you know, a lot of times you can't get to it by yourself. You can have the best sponsor in the world and not trained the way a, a professional is to find out why is it, why is it I bounce from one thing to the other? Cause if you're like me, uh, you know, it was like, I felt like I was fighting myself. You know, I was fighting myself. I'm going to meetings five days a week, seven days a week. I'm, uh, I'm, I have a sponsor, I'm a delegate and I can't stop eating. And it was because of that. And I needed to get the food down uh, enough to see that. The great line I love, and I'll wrap with this, is if you want to figure out what you're eating over, stop eating. And that 
really is the key. Hope that helps. Thank you, John. Thanks. Well, thank you to all those who posed questions, and thank you, John, for giving so much of yourself to us this morning. It's always a pleasure and so helpful to have you on the line. We look forward to the next opportunity. The share ID for today, 19,576. For John's presentation today, 19,576. And we're going to close now from page 164. You'll notice it's in a chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.